Section 12 of Poems of American History, The Colonial Era. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lois Beachy Yoder, Charlotte, North Carolina. Poems of American History, The Colonial Era, Chapter 3. THE SETTLEMENT OF VIRGINIA, PART THREE Among the planters at Jamestown was John Rolfe, a zealous Christian who became interested in Pocahontas, finally either captivated by her grace and beauty, as the Romanticists believe, or, in spite of personal scruples and for the good of the colony, as Hamer wrote, he proposed marriage. The princess was willing, her father consented, though he refused to be present at the ceremony, April 5, 1614, and the bride was given away by her uncle Opachisco. They had one son, Thomas Rolfe, whose descendants are still living in Virginia. The Marriage of Pocahontas, April 5, 1614 that balmy eve within a trellised bower rudely constructed on the sounding shore her plighted troth the forest maiden gave ere sought the skiff that bore them o'er the wave to the dark home-bound ship whose restless sway rocked to the winds and waves impatient of delay short was the word that pledged triumphant love that vow that claims its registry above and lo, the cadence of that hymn of praise whose hallowed incense rose as rose its lays, and few the worshippers neath that pure cope which emblems to the soul eternal hope. One native maiden waited the command of the young princess of Virginia's strand, and that dark youth, the page of Cedar Isle, who wept her woes and shared her sad exile, with his beloved bride who owned the royal blood, and near the forest queen majestically stood. Some others bent beside the rural shrine in adoration to the power divine. When at the altar knelt with minds serene the gallant soldier and the dark-browed queen, these for the love they bore her guileless youth paid the high fealty of the warm heart's truth, and with its homage satisfied, gone o'er, each vision bright that graced their natal shore. Those with forebodings, dread and brimful eyes, bade holy angels guard the destinies of one on whom had fallen the chrism of light with unction pure, the youthful neophyte of that fair clime where millions yet unborn shall raise the choral hymn from eve till morn. Mrs. M. M. Webster. In 1616, Pocahontas was taken to England, where she was received with marked attention by the Queen and Court. She renewed her acquaintance with Captain John Smith, who was busy weaving fairy tales about her, had her portrait painted, and led a fashionable life generally. It did not agree with her. She developed consumption and died at Gravesend, March 27, 1617. The Last Meeting of Pocahontas and the Great Captain 
In a stately hall at Brentford, when the English June was green, sat the Indian princess, summoned that her graces might be seen, for the rumor of her beauty filled the ear of court and queen. Therefore audience, as she waited, with half-scornful silent air, all undazzled by the splendor gleaming round her everywhere, dight embroidered hose and doublet, came a courtier down the stair. As with striding step he hasted, burdened with the queen's command, loud he cried in tones that tingled, Welcome, welcome to my land! But a tremor seized the princess, and she drooped upon her hand. What? No word, my sparkling water? Must I come on bended knee? I were slain within the forest, I were dead beyond the sea, on the banks of wild Pamunkey, I had perished but for thee. Oh, I keep a heart right royal, right loyal, that can never more forget. I can hear the rush, the breathing, I can see the eyelids wet, I can feel the sudden tightening of thine arms about me yet. Nay, look up, thy father's daughter never feared the face of man, shrank not from the forest darkness when her doe-like footsteps ran to my cabin, bringing tidings of the craft of Powhatan. With extended arms entreating stood the stalwart captain there, while the courtiers press around her and the passing sages stare, but no sign gave Pocahontas underneath her veil of hair. All her life and willowy figure quivered like an aspen leaf, and she crouched as if she shriveled, frost-touched by some sudden grief, turning only on her husband Rolf one glance, sharp, searching, brief. At the captain's haughty gesture, back the curious courtiers fell, and with soothest word and accent he besought that she would tell why she turned away, nor greeted whom, him whom she had served so well. But for two long hours the princess dumbly sat and bowed her head, moveless as the statue near her. When at last she spoke, she said, White man's tongue is false. It told me, told me that my brave was dead, and I lay upon my dear skins all one moon of falling leaves. Who hath care for song or corn dance when the voice within her grieves? Looking westward where the souls go, up the path the sunset weaves. Call me child now, it is over. On my husband's arm I lean. Never shadow, Nenemusa, our hearts twain shall come between. Take my hand and let us follow the great captain to his queen. Margaret Junkin Preston End of Section 12